Thank you. Appreciate that. Father, you inspired the scriptures through the Holy Spirit. We value them. They are to us precious. And we believe them to be profitable to us. So we pray that you will give us understanding as we go through Colossians 2 today, Lord. Holy Spirit, inspire our minds and our hearts to see, to understand, and to respond. Amen. Okay, young people are going out to their time. Okay, here's the headline so far from Colossians chapter 1, and as we go into chapter 2, Jesus is supreme. He's head over all things, has the highest name above all names. He could not be given a higher place in all the universe, the cosmos. He is given the very highest place. He sits in the throne of God alongside God the Father. Jesus, the man, born of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, sits in the throne of God. He is supreme. He is saviour. He has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. He's our saviour. We're not saving ourselves. He's saving us. And he is sufficient. He's all that we need. More than all that we need. So in this session three of this series, we're going to Colossians chapter two. And this is mostly scripture on the screen for you. Colossians 2, 1. I'm going to talk, do a, a verse or two, then talk about it and move on, okay? Then if we run out of time, I'll know where to stop. <laughs> okay. Paul says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, which is not far away from them. For as many has not seen my face in the flesh. Paul's running to people he's never met. He planted a church in Ephesus, and from that church in Ephesus, other churches planted out into Laodicea and into Colossae. And uh, the church in Colossae was almost certainly planted by a man called Epaphras, who's the founding pastor. How is he struggling? Well, he was struggling because of the, the situation they were in, and he's struggling because the Colossians are being faced with temptation to a false religion, which we'll talk about in a while. And he's struggling in prayer for them. He's not just worrying, he's praying. Okay? This is the man who says, turn all your anxieties into prayer. So he's struggling in prayer for them. And then in verse 2, he talks about the, what I call the goal of preaching and teaching and leadership. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, Messiah, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's often been said that, you know, the people who are the best in the word are rather dry, and the Pentecostals who are kind of full of faith and vitality aren't always strong on the word. But Paul wants these people to be firm in the truth and to be filled with joy. Their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. It's no dry orthodoxy, dotting every I and crossing every T. It's the other way around, isn't it? Um, but he wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love, finding amongst themselves one another and his individuals full assurance and understanding in knowing God. That's as a community and as individuals. You see, remember, most of the Bible is not written to me but to us. Together, to the people of God, the children of God. The good of all is the good of everyone. We're justified in this faith in Jesus and we're united to, we're to be united in love and in full conviction and comprehension of the truth. The knowledge of the mystery. Now, whenever you read the word mystery in the New Testament, Paul's using it and he's going to explain it. Oh, it's a mystery. I can't follow that one. I can't get... No, he's explaining a mystery to you. Something that was hidden, wasn't understood, he's now revealing and explaining. 
We can't explain the Trinity. We can only proclaim that God is three in one. Read John's Gospel, though, and in the words of Jesus himself, you'll find the three persons of the Godhead and how they relate to one another and submit to one another and love one another. Jesus is the only mystery worth investigating in whom are hidden all the, mis- all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're not treasures, cash, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Greeks valued ris- reason and wisdom. To this day, most Western societies uh, and education systems are based upon Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, Greek mathematics, and so on. The truth of Jesus transcends such reasoning. And there's nothing new in, in science and philosophy, it really all comes back from the Greeks. But their thinking is contrary to God in a number of ways. And the society that is based upon Greek thinking isn't anywhere near what God calls his kingdom. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews request a sign. Send us a sign from heaven. Come on, Jesus, save us a sign from heaven. You've seen all we've done already, he said. And Greeks seek after wisdom. They want the philosophy. They want it to sound reasonable and, and, and logical. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called. Are you one of the called? Both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Back to Colossians. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. When Paul writes similarly to the Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He's talking about the church there, the community of people. I've kind of married you to Jesus, he says. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus, that you be diverted from him. You take your eyes off the goal of Jesus. False teaching, false teachers and false religions offer you something other than or more than, they claim, is in Jesus. And of course, that's a lie. How can there be anything more than Jesus? All the fullness of God dwells in him. He's equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. How can there be anything of any value at all beyond the creator and sustainer of all things? The Savior and Shepherd, the ruler of all. He's far more than we can comprehend. His resources of grace and power and wisdom towards us are limitless. Yet Paul speaks assuringly to them. It's like he's given them a warning, but he backs it up with a comment. For though I'm absent... In the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul didn't literally travel in spirit or in the spirit to Colossae and kind of sat in on the meeting there. When the spirit caught away Philip from the Gaza road after he'd vanished from the site of an Ethiopian eunuch and be just baptized and was found in Azotus, or which is now called Ashdod, about 40 kilometers away. That was a physical transference. I think Philip was as surprised as anybody else when he suddenly found himself in Azotus. But that's a very rare event in Scripture. So I don't think you can start, you know, transferring physically to your workplace and not having to make the commute, okay? Paul was seeing them in his imagination and, and, and sometimes the Lord was giving moments of prophetic insight to him. He saw things, he understood things by the Spirit. He saw the problems they were facing, he saw the help they needed to overcome it and how they would overcome 
and would come through if they received his fatherly apostolic advice. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Notice that walk in him? That's the words often used in the New Testament. It means the whole way of life. Your whole way of life. It's not a sprint. It's a long process. It takes you your whole life to get there. All right? It's a journey of life. And it's a life of faith. So you walk in faith. Walk in Jesus. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. That picks up on chapter 1, verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature in heaven. Rooted, grounded, steadfast, immovable, established in the faith, built up in him. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's yours, folks. You can have it. That's a church community like that, and then every individual Christian. And abounding with thanksgiving in the faith, in Christ Jesus. So it's, again, it's not dry orthodoxy. It's not being boring but precise and, and, and you know, exact. It, 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 though I want to be exact about the word. But we're to be filled with joy and thankful faith in Jesus and his word. To rejoice in the things we find. Walk in him. You know, this life of faith is a walk. Modern business speak has this thing about going forward, doesn't it? Politicians use it. We're going to do this going forward. I dare you to do it going back. I haven't found anybody's mastered time travel yet. We have to go forward. Right now, you've passed another two seconds of your life, right? All you can do is go forward. You have no choice. So it's how you go forward that matters. With faith. Steadfast. Rooted. Grounded. Steadfast. Immovable. Then Paul starts in to talk about these false teachers and false teaching. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, this Greek stuff, and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, that's what false teaching and false teachers are offering, really. Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, basic principles of worldly wisdom. People say, oh, yeah, but what so-and-so says makes a lot of sense. Yes, it's common sense in philosophy. That's what he's giving you. Some so-called sermons are, in fact, self-help seminars. This is what to do to get in life. This is what to do to get your good new job. Now, I'm not, op- I'm not opposed to some good advice, but let's not think that preaching is just about giving good advice to get through life. You can read that kind of stuff in any number of books, and most of them are written by non-believers, and they're used by the people who claim to be believers to prepare their talks. Life-changing truth, notice this, is according to Christ. It's also according to Scriptures. And of course, many ministries... Now, when I was typing that on my computer in the morning, it turned that into monstrosities. I'd misspelt it. Isn't that interesting? Many ministries will use some verse of Scripture to illustrate a point they wish to make, but they're usually taking that point out of context, uh, misinterpreting it and misapplying it. They're not reading the whole thing through so you get what the Scripture is actually saying. So when you come across someone preaching, teaching, or prophesying, if it's not centered on Jesus and doesn't use Scripture in context, don't pay any further attention to them. Please. Now Paul returns to his big theme. We'll come back to that in a minute. The supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. For in Christ, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me just stop there for a moment. Get this. He's talking about a man, Jesus Messiah. In Jesus Messiah, he's eternal God made flesh. In 
Jesus the Messiah, all the fullness of God dwells in that body. Jesus is no less God because he's a man. He's completely God. 100% authentic God. And yet he has a human face and human hands. That's an amazing thing to say. In Christ dwells all the fullness of God bodily. And you are complete in him, which doesn't mean you're a finished job. I don't think you are. No, I'm not. But it means you are, you have all you need to grow. You lack nothing to become mature. You have it all delivered from his hand to you. You're complete in him. And another sense in which he already counts you complete. You're already justified. You're not earning your way to heaven. Yeah? You're already in Jesus. You're already accepted. You're already adopted. So you're complete. But that completeness can be worked out in the way you live. But then this phrase, who is the head of all principality and power. He has authority over every other authority. Human, superhuman, visible, invisible, doesn't matter. Good, evil, doesn't matter. He is supreme. Head over all principality and all power. Come back to that again in a minute. I want you to remember this, just tripping back to chapter 1 again for a minute. Things that Jesus has completed and will complete. He has reconciled us to himself. You're not a bit reconciled, part reconciled. You are reconciled to God in Jesus. Accepted. And he will present us finished to himself. He's going to finish what he started in us and present us to himself as mature children of God. That's what he's doing. Our problem is we sometimes resist it. We think it's just we're having a difficult time or we're under a bit of pressure or whatever. We need to say, what's happening, Lord? And the answer will probably be, I'm maturing you. I'm growing you. I'm testing your faith and don't worry, you'll come through it. Yeah? Because he's going to present us to himself completed, mature. Now we come to part that I want to probably linger on quite a bit. I've called it the power of the cross, by which, of course, we mean the power of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Once Jesus has been taken down from that cross, it was just a lump of old wood again, all right? But what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the power of the cross. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Christian men do not need to be circumcised. Our cleansing or being set apart for the Lord is done without hands. Paul calls it the circumcision of Christ, and that therefore then applies to male and female, that we are cleansed, we're made clean, we're made holy, not by anything that's done to us physically, but by what God has done to us in Jesus. We are buried with him in baptism, raised with him, That's the argument that runs at some length through the letter of Romans. We're to believe that Jesus went to the cross, died and was entombed and rose again from the dead after three days, not only for us, but with us. He took us on the journey. His death is our death to our old godless 
way of life. His resurrection is our new birth into a new life in him, eternal life. Life from God, in God, with God, and for God. So we can set aside the circumcision thing there and say that the rest of that verse is about us male and female, men and women. We were with Jesus when he went to the cross, when he was laid in the tomb, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended to heaven. He identifies with us and we need to take hold of those thoughts and identify with him. These things are true. When, if any of you were ever baptized in that, that little pond over there, these things are true. Not because you went in the pond, but you acted them out in the pond and claimed them, that you believe them to be true. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. This new life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Get our heads around it and our old attitudes and actions and be alive to Jesus, living by the grace of God for the honor of God. Being forgiven for all our trespasses. I'll get some new teeth one day. Being forgiven for our trespasses is the starting point of a Christian life, not the reward. Oh, I hope when I get to heaven I'll be forgiven. No, you're either forgiven now or you're not. Forgiveness of sins is not a final outcome. It's the start of a Christian life, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Little children, says Paul writing, says John, sorry, writing to people in Asia. Little children, you know that the Father loves you and he's forgiven you in your sins. That's the beginning of Christianity. You're just a little kid. You're a little, little toddler. But you know that's true. You're a brand new Christian, but you know your sins are forgiven you because Jesus paid for them on the cross. Now listen to this part. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's something nailed to the cross besides Jesus. Now that, that's an image that Paul is using. Let me just go back and, uh, there and illustrate something to you. You probably can't read that. But it's in... Hebrew at the top, Greek in the middle, which I can read, and at the bottom in Latin, which is fairly easy because the letters are like ours. When the Romans crucified people, they would sometimes put up a charge sheet, but it wasn't a sheet, it was usually board for the crucified criminal. Their name was followed by robber, murderer, you know, insurrectionist, you know, rebel. The one that Pilate ordered for Jesus was simply, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. John's Gospel tells us something in history. Say that when the Jews stood there and read it, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and they read it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the chief priests went off to, 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 to Pilate. They ran down into the city and said, don't write the king of the Jews, just that he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. He was kind of getting back at them at that moment. Now follow this. Paul is picturing something nailed to the cross, which is not the charge that was nailed up there by Jesus, about Jesus. It's our charge sheet. The record of wrongdoings that had David Evans' name on them. You can substitute your own, please do. Your and my charge sheet was nailed to the cross. In fact, the charge sheet really is effectively God's law, because we never kept it. We broke it all. The requirements. Our debt and duty to God as lawbreakers was discharged, paid in full, in Jesus' body and blood 
at the cross. And in the old days, when you were sent an invoice that you paid and you were trusted to pay it in a few days' time or whatever, talking about Victorian days, you took the invoice with you, you went to the shop and you paid the invoice, you, you paid your money, and they stamped it, you know? Red ink, rubber stamp, paid. Paid in full. Your charge sheet is marked paid in full. Nailed to the cross. There's a hymn that says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. There's more. At the cross too, Jesus defeated every power that is against us. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a spectacle over them in the cross. Some English versions put the words of the cross there because that is the context. It follows through from the previous verse. Some have said that Jesus was defeated by Satan on the cross. I've heard preachers, teachers say that. But that the Lord Jesus descended into hell and overcame Satan there. Others say that it's in the resurrection that Jesus defeated Satan and every power of darkness. Both of those things are wrong. I would call them false teaching. I'm not trying to give anybody a hard time, but they're completely wrong. I don't have time today to discuss the subject of hell with you, except to remind you it's not at all Satan's dominion. Uh, In Scripture, it's very broadly his final destiny, a place of fiery judgment where he will be punished. Jesus talked about... uh, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Sadly, the unbelieving will be consigned there too. Revelation 20 describes that day. And by the way, no power of hell. I wouldn't have written the line that way. Satan doesn't live and work in hell now. It's where he's going. All right? That's his final destiny. Scriptures here says that Jesus disarmed took away their weapons. That's literally the the meaning of that word. Principalities and power and made a public spectacle of them. Now when a Roman emperor emperor or Roman general had had, had won his battles and won his wars, he was given a, a procession a triumph it was called, into Rome. And so they lined up outside him and his soldiers and the captives they'd taken and so on. And the captives were made a spectacle. Yeah? They were chained, they were naked, they were dirty, they were filthy, but all the soldiers had had a bath and freshened up and got their best togs on. So there they are walking in and all these filthy wretches are walking behind them because that's that's the spectacle. Jesus made a spectacle of every evil power but he defeated them on the cross. His resurrection was the evidence of his victory won at Golgotha. What did Jesus during the days between Golgotha and resurrection morning? He rested. His spirit rested with the Father and his, rest, his body rested in the tomb through two full Sabbath days according to my reckoning. And he rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. Since these things are true, who Jesus is for us and to us and what he's done for us, what he's doing for us, hold fast to the truth of Jesus. And coming down now, Paul goes back to it again, reject the false teachers. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. You know, the rituals of, 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 of the law, you know, kosher food. Uh, you can't eat bacon, you can't eat shellfish and so on. And, you know, or regarding a festival or a moon or Sabbaths. That's interesting. We are not under the law of keeping Sabbaths. 
Let no one judge you about the Sabbath. Sorry, Seventh-day Adventists, no one should judge us about the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we're not... We're not to follow, we don't have to follow the festivals of, Egypt, of Israel, new moon rituals. I dealt with one false teacher on that one some years ago. That was funny. Read Galatians. Paul thunders to Gentile Christian believers, whether Jewish or Gentile actually, about turning back from faith in Messiah to those things. Don't go back to them. It's bondage, he says. Those things were foreshadows. The reality is now here in Jesus. The law is fulfilled, completed in him and those who trust in him. The law of God still continues in his moral law, his principles of how we conduct ourselves, our sexual behavior, our relationship with others. But the moral law, of course, is summarized by two statements, and Jesus gave, us, gave them to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And Scripture says, New Testament says, the love is the fulfilling of the law. If you keep the law of love... You don't need the rest of the law to tell you what to do and what not to do because you'll be instinctively, by the Spirit guiding you, be obeying God's moral law. False humility will pick up in a minute or two. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which is not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, not holding to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is of God. Now, Colossae had this thing about, they were being taught about the worship of angels. That's an interesting thing because that's odd. That wasn't part of Greek religion and mythology, but it does, it does connect with mystical Judaism. What is nowadays, nowadays called the Kabbalah. It's a kind of like a, a black magic form of Judaism. In that, in that mystical Judaism called the Kabbalah, there are pyramidical structures of angels and demons, powers. And you've got to get to the good ones to deal with the bad ones. Or if you're the other way around, you know, you're on the dark side of the force, you deal with the bad ones to deal, to deal with the good ones. You choose what magic you want to work. You work to get one side against the other side. Now do you see what Paul's addressing here? The worship, the service of angels. That's why it's already stated, all authorities, every visible and invisible authority, every human and superhuman authority were made by Christ and are subservient to Christ. And he says specifically that the evil ones were defeated at the cross. Too. Now, I don't want to disappoint you. I'm not going to tell you the truth about Father Christmas and get everybody upset about it. But I need to tell you the truth about angels, okay? Angels is a non-translated word. The Greek word is angelos, and it means messenger, simply means messenger. So depending on where we find the word angel in Scripture, we've got to think that's a messenger. And we've got to look at the context there, verses around there to see, is that a human messenger or a heavenly messenger? The messengers from heaven that the Lord sends do not have wings. That is mythology, not Scripture. Angels from the realms of glory wing your flight over all the earth. It's mythology. Other heavenly creatures... And we're described as the cherubim and the seraphim are described as having wings, but they never leave the presence of God. But the angels, the messengers who leave the presence of God, come to us. When they appear, they appear as men. 
They look sound, even dressed in a way which is appropriate to us receiving them. When Joshua saw a man come to him, he looked at him, he thought he was a warrior, he thought he was coming to help them. So he said, are you with us or with the enemy? And he said, I'm not, I'm not with you, I'm the, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. So he looked like a warrior that Joshua related to. Let me tell you, let me really blunt about this. If you were in Africa, you know, and an angel turned up, he'd look African. If you're in Asia and an angel turned up, he'd look Asian. All right? He'll be appropriate to the person he's got to communicate to. They take on that physical appearance by the will of God so they can communicate from heaven to you. They're not weird. They don't glow and they don't have wings. Paul Paul even says in Hebrews that some of us may have entertained, put up for the night, angels unawares. You know? It was a heavenly messenger, not an earthly messenger. So we don't need to get the good angels on our side against the bad angels. Do you know why? Because the king of angels is on our side. And he sends his angels as ministering spirits, which we don't even see most of the time. But he sends them and they do things for us. I was rescued in a car accident years ago by some... By, I, as, uh, this car, the car was crashed and rolling and I felt a hand push me into the chair like the seat something pushed me deep into the chair and uh, I didn't I, I crawled out of the car and walked away but uh, my dad went and saw the car some days later my dad, my dad was almost, almost threw up because the arm of the, of the steering wheel was sticking in the chair and you know I got out with, I had marks on my face I had nothing on my chest no broken ribs, nothing. So how did I get out of there with a steering wheel in my chest? Because something held me in the chair. Could have been an angel. And we don't need to pray to the saints or to angels or to the Virgin Mary, whom the Roman Catholics call the Queen of Heaven, which is interesting because that was what the Israelites, Israelites worshipped too, a Queen of Heaven. We pray to our Father through Jesus' Son by the help of the Spirit. Jesus is the only mediator between us and God. Here it is in 1 Timothy 5. There's one, one God, one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So that's not angels, not saints, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not priests, not even a pastor. I am not your mediator. I'm not your go-between. Only Jesus is that. Amen? Amen. So reject the false teaching. Paul says to them, Therefore, if you died with Christ, from the basic principles of the world, just common sense and the way that the rules and regulations that people choose themselves. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Again, if you want to read the tough version of this, go to Galatians. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Don't be taken in by people who claim that there's a higher life and a purer life and a more spiritual life by abstaining from certain foods, you know, and eating some others. Listen, do whatever you like for your health's sake, but don't think you're being spiritual by doing it. I'll have a bacon sandwich, thank you. (laughs) And I'm no less holy for doing so. All right? If you want to be vegetarian, if you want to be vegan, fine. 
It's a matter of conscience. You do it for your body's sake, whatever else. But don't think you're being better by doing that, please. It's your choice, your free choice. But don't think you've, you've jumped up a gear above other people, please. All right? Commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body. They have no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Look, look at those things. They're false, self-imposed religion, false humanity, neglect of the body. Earlier on he talked about you know, claiming things they've seen. Anybody can claim a vision. Anybody can claim to have had a vision. Paul had a vision. He was caught up into the heavenlies and saw the throne of God. And yet he says he was forbidden to talk about those things, things that he'd seen and heard. How many people want to tell you about, I saw this, I went up into heaven, I said, whoa, 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 really? I'll take a rain check on that. Seriously, I'll take a rain check on that. Appearance of wisdom in self-formation, false humility, neglect of the body. That's what's called asceticism. Severe self-discipline, avoiding all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. That's the Apple Dictionary version of that. Some Christians in the early centuries were so into this kind of self-neglect, almost a kind of self-abuse. They lived in a cave. They lived out in the desert. They lived on top of a pillar. They only ate this and they didn't eat that. And, you know, they, 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 they fasted themselves practically to death. That is false humility. Such activity doesn't make anyone more saintly because you'll still be wrestling with your begetting, besetting sins if you're not doing what Paul says, reckoning, looking at them, saying, I'm dead to that, I'm crucified, taking the medicine that Scripture provides rather than thinking you can beat it out of yourself. You cannot beat your sin out of yourself. It's foolishness. But it has an appearance of wisdom. The same could be said of the required celibacy of the Roman Catholic Church. How, what, how, good, how much good has that done? No, a lot of evil, actually. Choosing self-discipline in good, but self-neglect, which becomes self-abuse, dishonors the Lord. And no amount of those kind of disciplines actually really deals with the battle for holiness because the medicine of Scripture doesn't take us there. It takes us to reckon this, know this, put this away, put that aside. Take hold of this. Take hold of that. And legalism has been the, the constant battle in the Church of Christ ever since Jesus' time. Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the, Pharisee, the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy and legalism. Tick, 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 tick. I'm a good man. I'm a good bloke. I do all of those things and I don't do those things. See, legalism or Phariseeism reduces holiness, righteousness, the way of life to a do list and a don't list. And so long as you've got your ticks and your do's and don't list, you're a good guy. That's legalism, folks. And it still troubles the church to this day. Jesus tells us, do not be like that. Because it produces hypocrisy, pride, and boasting over others. Rather, we choose those things which please the Lord. We choose self-discipline. If it comes to it, we choose to believe scripture, and we live by the grace of God for the glory of God. And here's another word about testing things. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do, do not quench the spirit. Don't, you know, seek spiritual gifts, but use them in the, the gifts of the spirit, but use them in a way that's honoring to him and to one another and encouraging to one another. 
Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every fall of evil. I would suggest thou could add to that prophesying, public speaking, preaching and teaching as well. Every kind of public Christian ministry. We shouldn't quench the spirit, shut down the prophetic, but every word that's prophesied, preached, taught, written, tweeted, videoed, should be tested, measured, and then either accepted, take hold of what is good, or rejected. So in that, right now, anyone what I'm saying to you, hold on to what is good, and when I, when I came with a slip of the tongue, I said something stupid along the way, let it go. Do not watch, listen, or read without thought and query. Make an examination of it. What's, by what standards? All things need to be accord to Christ. Is it centered on him? Does it honor him? Does it match and apply his words? Test it against scripture. By the way, thorough knowledge of the Bible would help you. The, Bible, the people at the Greek city Berea listened to Paul on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, went away, searched the scriptures. Having checked out what he said, they came back the next week and said, okay, you can, talk, you can carry on that, please. And they, they listened intently to what he had said because they checked it out between times. Those were noble people. They went, oh, he's a good speaker, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's fiery, isn't he? They went home and checked it out, folks, in the Bible. Now, let's close this up. Our focus is higher than self-improvement. It's higher than prophetic speculations. We don't need any of those false religions which teach about all sorts of mediators between us and God and all kinds of ways you've got to climb your way through to get the answer you need. We only need Jesus. We don't need human philosophy. We don't need to be smart and clever. In fact, we need to be more simple because it's simple faith in Jesus. If you can get childlike faith, hang on to it. Let's have a peek at where we go to next time. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. But you need to know you've been raised with Christ. You need to know that you've died with him and have been raised with him. And if you haven't been baptized, but you believe those things to be true, you need to be baptized. Put a wrapper around them of, of, of action, of obedience, visibility, confessing Jesus is Lord, laying aside your old life, coming out of the water to live this new life in Jesus from now on by the grace of God. If you're raised, seek those things which are above. We're going to come to communion. The power of the cross. Let's go back in our thinking to the power of the cross. What did Jesus do at the cross? Bought your forgiveness? Yes? Made reconciliation? So you're reconciled to God? Yeah. Defeated everything that is against you. Defeated everything that is against you. Every power. Doesn't matter what power it is. Every power. Now that doesn't mean we're not in a fight and in a struggle. But Jesus is already victor. And he who has conquered will enable us to conquer. And I wanted to suggest this to you, that Jesus conquering on the cross wasn't, ha ha, I've done it. It took hours. It was a battle which he fought on the cross. But he won. And he rested. In the tomb and in heaven. Body and tomb, spirit in heaven. Until resurrection day. So when we come to this bread and wine.
His body broken, his blood poured out. We are encountering, we're handling in our fingers again and in our mouth the power of the cross, the power of what Jesus did for us. Just another thought. There's an old chant of the church. goes back many centuries. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. They particularly chanted at Easter time. I'm going to suggest a fuller list to you. Didn't do it. Jesus lived with us and for us. Jesus died with us and for us. Jesus rose and ascended to the Father with us and for us. Jesus now reigns over us, head over all things to his church, every authority and power under his feet. And Jesus will one day come for us and we will be with him and live with him and reign with him forever. All of those things are said in this. We do this until he comes. Let's do this together.